Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. My name is Anna Shupp. I am a wife. I am 25 years old. Um, We've been married for the last five and a half years. Um, I am a Georgia native and the middle child of six kids all born at home. Um, And that was kind of the start into me being a home birther um, and also my journey into being a birth worker as well. I am a birth keeper and I am the mother of three beautiful souls, one living child. um, And that is a big part of my story. And I honestly think one of the most interesting things about me that kind of freaks people out like a little bit is that I have a severe fear of silly string of all things. And it's really weird. There's like some childhood trauma that I like one I knew about, one I didn't know about, and um, my mom informed me of. And so yeah, I am scared of silly string. It grossed me out. I my siblings have terrorized me with it for the entirety of my life. Um, <laughs> but that for me, I think is like the weirdest thing about me. Um, but I, uh, what else I can think of, I guess, is um, I am currently raising my first round of chickens, which is so exciting to me. And I have waited forever to do that. And so I am dipping my toes into the homestead lifestyle. And um, that's about it. At the moment. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. Where do you think your story starts? I'm so curious if it starts in childhood or in your later years. I mean, I definitely think that like I mentioned, my story is very impacted by the fact that my mom had all of us at home. Um, as far as what my passion is with birth and how I chose to birth myself, um, that definitely was an influence for me. But I would say that my the, the biggest um, thing that pushed me forward was toward the middle of my college career. And that was actually right after I got married. So I spent my first two years of university um, at a school close to my home in Georgia. And then halfway through my degree, I got married because I was like, I love this man. Why would I like put off being with him? Um, We were long distance. Why would I put off being with him permanently just because of like the quote unquote issues that I've got going on in life. So we just like face it together. So we were both 20 whenever we got married, um, which is, 
I think, atypical by today's standards. So he definitely got married young. Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I've loved every second of it. And so halfway through my degree, I moved to Tennessee and um, started back to school there. Did finish my degree, even though nobody believed that I was going to do it since I got married. Um, and while I was studying biology, I just like started having this affinity toward birth and reproduction and like studies of women's health and not in like the university education type of narrative. Um, definitely from like a holistic standpoint, because I was the um, like low waste, you know, non-toxic, definitely headed the crunchy route, definitely there now kind of person. And so whenever I found myself um, like laying in bed at night, my husband would be on the other side, like watching something on YouTube. And I'd be on the other uh, the other side of the bed watching home births. And so he'd like roll over and be like, can you please turn that down? Because there'd be a lady like moaning in the background because she's, you know, pushing. And it was just hysterical to me. Um, but I think that that was kind of the catalyst for what brought me to where I'm at now. And um, just like being so enthralled by what true raw physiological birth looked like and then realizing that that was something that not only I, I had wanted for myself something I saw my mother do in my lifetime um because there's three kids younger than me and I was here for all of the births that she had um but also like knowing that I wanted to support women through that and so that I would say is kind of where the beginning of my story starts um and then it just transitions into whenever we did get pre pregnant the first time around yeah, I want you to talk about what you saw with birth as a kid, because that is a unique part of your story. Like, what what thoughts did you have as a child seeing your mom? Like, were you a little bit freaked out or were you in awe? No, I loved it. Um, so I was, uh, like I said, I'm in the middle of six kids. My brother is 12 years older than me and the baby is 11 years younger than me. So I am like dead center. Um, and so I was almost five and then like almost six because those two were really close together whenever my two younger sisters were born and then the baby who is now 14 she's not a baby um I was 11 and so uh, I especially remember that last one but um in in that I remember like my my mom was not very present like keeping us as the kids around while she birthed, like while she labored. Uh, maybe she would like come into the kitchen a couple times, but like she spent closed doors in, in her bedroom the whole time. And like, that was kind of like her, her haven, her safety zone. And, um, but I remember specifically with my youngest sister that day was my cousin's birthday. And so my mom's brother and his wife and his kids his daughter being the one who it was her birthday, they were all over here at our house, like knowing that my mom was in labor, she was going to have a baby. The cousins were going to share a birthday. And it was like this huge celebration. And um, my mom, on the other hand, was, a, she was annoyed by it because she didn't want them to have the same birthday, but everybody else was super excited about it. Um, and so, which she had invited them into, you know, her home while she was laboring. But I just, I remember as a kid knowing that like, it was not something to be scared of and it was a celebration. It was something to be enjoyed. And while I never like physically saw my mother give birth, um, certainly the like 
the aura around it, uh, the atmosphere around it was like just joyful and it was normal, you know? Um, so my husband and I got married in November of 2018 in July of the following year. I came down from Tennessee where I had moved to because that's where my husband was from. And I came down for a week to visit my mom. And I was here for a week. The in, like I remember at the start of the week, I think it was like a Tuesday because uh, I was here Monday through Saturday. Um, and I say here because we've since moved back to Georgia. So we're now back close around my family, which is super fun. Um, but that Tuesday, I remember standing in the kitchen with some of my sisters and getting this weird pain in my, like, in my uterus, like, kind of in my ovary, and thinking, like, oh, that just must be ovulation cramps, and, and it just, like, quickly subsided, and so I was, like, okay, like, I should be, or maybe it's my period, because I think I was, I was due to get my period, that's what it was, I thought it was my period, turns out that was actually implantation cramps, because that Saturday, I was just, like, I don't know, I am not like I'm a few days late. I feel like this is not right. And so I had just a few months before in April that year, I had stopped birth control. I had only been on it for a year, a year period. Um, I started in April before we got married to like regulate my cycle because even though I like had that holistic mindset and my mom told me, don't do it. I was like still you know, oh, I know what I'm talking about, you know, like, it's not that bad. And so I got on birth control to like, let my body get used to it before we got married. Um, And so then whenever my 12 month prescription expired in the following April, I was like, "Ah, I'm not gonna renew it. And so I was like, I know enough about fertility awareness, I did not um, (laughs) to, to manage and like, we won't get pregnant. Obviously, like three or four months later in July, whenever I get a positive pregnancy test at my mom's house at one o'clock in the morning, I immediately came downstairs and woke her up and I was like, what am I going to do? And so, and not because I was like upset about it, um, because I had always wanted to be a mother, um, but mostly because I was eight months married. I was not anticipating having a kid anytime soon. Um, I was in the middle of my college degree trying to finish that. And I also had just moved away from everyone I had ever known in my life. And so I was really scared. And so I told my mom that night, she told me it's going to be okay. Go home. The next morning I went home, saw my husband, showed him the positive test. And he told me it was upside down. And I was like, that's not how you're supposed to respond to that. But um, he he was excited about it. He was happy about it. We worked through all the emotions together. And um, that was the end of July. Um, we told, we waited until, you know, waited the traditional 12 weeks to tell everybody and um, posted it on social media. And um, I had already secured a midwife because I knew that it can be very hard to get midwives um, if you don't like do it super early on. So we interviewed some midwives um, because that was just the route that that was the only route that I knew to go for home birth. And so we had our midwife. I let's see, didn't do any ultrasounds. Um, Whenever we had our 10 week appointment, she used the Doppler. Um, 
And so she, she was like, oh, it's no big deal. Like we can't find a heartbeat, but like 10 weeks is usually the earliest that we can hear it on Doppler. And so we walked away from our appointment, like, oh, no worries. Totally fine. Nothing to worry about. Um, and we came back four weeks later, uh, at the 14 week appointment. And she was like, still can't find it. I don't know if, you know, like it could just be hiding. It could be the placenta. Um, so we, we said, instead of waiting another four weeks for the next appointment, let's come back in two weeks. So we go in for the 16 week appointment and she said, okay, still can't get a heartbeat, which at that point I had, uh, like five days before that started to get some bleeding. It wasn't fresh blood. It was like the old, you know, brown blood that you might get before your period. Um, and so I was starting to become concerned at that point around 15 weeks. Um, but like my belly was growing and I had nausea all the way up until 11, 11 weeks. And so like all the signs and symptoms of pregnancy were there. And, uh, so whenever I saw that blood, I like did some hardcore Googling and had totally convinced myself in my head that I had a subchorionic hemorrhage. And I was like, oh, it's just, you know, like, it's going to be fine. No big deal. And so at 16 weeks, whenever we, for the third time, could not get a heartbeat. And by that point, she was like, we should be able to get it on Doppler. How do you feel like about going in for an ultrasound? Um, we talked about it, we prayed about it and, um, we decided, okay, we'll do this. We'll go in for an ultrasound. So she got us booked the very same day and, uh, we went in and, um, I know just like everybody else knows that the ultrasound tech is not supposed to say anything. Um, but the woman that did my ultrasound was just like so incredibly staunch and like, she felt so cold. And so I know she didn't go like know what I was coming in for, but walking in with the potential of miscarriage in my brain and then like having this very cold feeling in the room. And then anytime I asked a question, her just kind of like look at me like, I can't say anything to you. It just was like progressively getting my, my feelings and my anxiety up. And um, so she left the room and my midwife had attended the appointment with us and I looked over at her and she said, well, I've seen enough ultrasounds to know that there was no heartbeat. So I am like in my day to day life, I am a very not like highly emotional person, I would say, but I don't have an issue like getting in tune with my feelings, letting it out feeling all the things. But whenever like push comes to shove, if I am under pressure, if I'm under stress, then like I'm super analytical about stuff and I am going to present as like non-emotional and okay, how do we solve the issue? What are the facts? Um, and so I like didn't react whenever she told me I've seen enough of these to know there's not a heartbeat. And I was just like, okay. So what's next? And from there we decided, and also, also we found out in that appointment um, later once the, uh, the radiologist reviewed the report that while I was measuring 
like my uterus was measuring at 16 weeks, just in line with what I thought it was. Um, my body had missed the miscarriage because the baby had passed away at only nine and a half weeks. And so like, which was to, to me, it was so crazy because like I said, I had nausea even until 11 weeks. And so like the hormones in my body were still just like pumping and my body was not ready to let go at all. And I think that's why I had convinced myself that even with the bleeding, that it was a subchorionic hemorrhage because like I just mentally, there was no way Um, because that was an option with pregnancy and fertility that I had never even considered. Like the fact of miscarriage had never even run through my mind. And so we went home and because I had already been bleeding for about five days, but it was very minimal, we decided to use some herbs to help support my body to expel. And so I think it was like a mixture of black cohosh and blue cohosh that that I used. That sent me into five days worth of labor, essentially. And it would pick up and then it would die down. And it was just like on and off and on and off for five days. And for for at least two or three of those nights, because it always tended to pick up in the evening time. Almost two or three of those nights, I know for sure, I spent almost my entire night sitting in the bathtub because I was in so much pain that like water has always been just like relaxing to me. And obviously it's the natural epidural. Um, And so like I was laboring in the bathtub for like several nights at a time. And so eventually I decided like, this hurts too much. I can't do this anymore. And so in the middle of the night, one night, my husband ran to CVS to uh, get some ibuprofen, I think, because we didn't even have it in our medicine cabinet. Like that's, I don't do that. Like I don't keep Tylenol in my house. It's non-existent. Um, So I got some ibuprofen, which like barely touched it at all. Um, But then like the next morning I'd wake up and it would be fine. And so this went on for about five days until I, and I like would pass like small clots throughout that time. And then toward the end, I passed this one really big clot that was about the size of my palm. And immediately after that, it started slowing down a lot. And so I was thinking, okay, this is the it. This is the end of it. You know, this is it. Um, And my bleeding stopped. I went back to see my midwife as a follow-up appointment and things like were seeming normal. We didn't really do any lab tests to like make sure that anything was, you know, there was nothing wrong or anything like that. She basically just told me to every week take a pregnancy test, just like a normal strip test, because they detected such low levels of HCG that if I, once I got a negative, then I knew that my levels had gone down completely. And um, so that was a very non-invasive way for me to know that, you know, everything was going like it was supposed to. And so I guess it would be like nine, nine weeks later. Yeah. Cause I was at 16 weeks, which felt really wild because that was in the middle of, that was in October. That was in the middle of uh, pregnancy loss and miscarriage awareness month. And I had to then share on my, well, I mean, I didn't have to, but I felt like obligated to share on my social media what had happened because just four weeks before that at 12 weeks, I had announced to everybody that I was expecting a child. And so 
nine weeks later, uh, in December, my husband was graduating with his master's degree and we were supposed to be flying out to Arizona on like a Friday, I think. On like Tuesday of that week, I took a pregnancy test because I had forgotten for several weeks before that and had not been checking. And the pregnancy test is positive. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, now I know that you ovulate before you get your period, postpartum. Is there a chance that I got pregnant before I, like, ever got my cycle back? And so I called my midwife and I was like, hey, is this a possibility? And she goes, like, well, I mean, yeah, it definitely is. She's like, whenever... She she had a miscarriage with her first pregnancy, and she got pregnant before her period ever returned with her next child. And so she's like, it happened to me, and I know that my mom, with my two sisters right under me, um, my mom got pregnant at 11 months breastfeeding with my sister, no cycle, and just, you know, ovulated, got pregnant. And so, like, I know this happens. And so I'm thinking, okay, like, this is wild. What is going on? And I was like, let's go in. Let's do, you know, and she's like, let's, let's see what's going on. You know, just like kind of make sure. So I told her, hey, let's do an ultrasound. So we go in, do this ultrasound. And there, I'm trying to remember exactly, like, the course of the events that happened. I Maybe we didn't do an ultrasound right away. I think we did some blood work. And so she gives me a call and I am standing in my kitchen, like leaning up against the cabinets. And she calls me and she's like, Hey, I just wanted to let you know that there is HCG still present in your system, but you are not pregnant. This is actually remaining tissue from your previous pregnancy. So I was like, okay, thank you for letting me know. And we kind of like talked about what was the next step, which was then the ultrasound. And I hung up the phone with her. And as dramatic as you see in the movies, like I had that moment where I just sank to the floor in tears, sobbing up against my kitchen counter. Um, and like five minutes later, my husband walked through the door from work. I was just weeping because... There was part of me that because of this experience I had just gone through and even though I was not prepared for that pregnancy the first time, like the hopes of thinking, okay, now we get to have this baby that we were supposed to have, like maybe I'm pregnant. Uh, that realization like got me so excited. And then just to have those hopes dashed again and realize, no, we're actually dealing like with the same hell that I just went through that I thought was over with was like just mind boggling. I went in for the ultrasound. This, this is, I think Wednesday now, two days before we're supposed to be leaving to go out of town to Arizona, go in for the ultrasound, the tech does the, ultra, does the ultrasound and everything looks exactly like it did at that 16 week ultrasound. Like you can see the gestational sac, you can see the baby nine and a half weeks measuring inside, like nothing had changed at all. And so, and it was like, even crazy, the fact that this baby was nine and a half weeks old, I am now technically 25 weeks pregnant. 
I did not even like, I didn't get an infection or anything because my cervix closed up. So after I had like taken the herbs and the tinctures to help support the miscarriage, my, my cervix ended up closing back up so that I did not end up getting an infection. Cause if it had been left open, then like I would have been very susceptible to that. Like looking back now, I realized just how emotionally attached I was to the idea of that baby that like my body just physically could not let go of it. Like so much to the point where it just like, it just held on and like closed itself back up and was like, no, we're going to act like we're still pregnant. And just, just like it held on. And so by that point, because I thought, okay, I'm nine weeks removed from having this miscarriage. I had taken the time to emotionally work through it, to process it. And so after that ultrasound appointment, my, um, my midwife, she told me, she's like, you know, what do you want to do? She's like, we have a few options, you know, especially given the circumstances, I don't think we want to go the herbal route again. Um, and so we decided to do suppositories, um, of Cytotec and which honestly at the time, I don't even know that I realized that it was Cytotec pills. Um, and so she, she inserted the suppository. I don't know why looking back, I couldn't have inserted the suppository myself, but that's its own thing. And that was about noon on Wednesday. I decided I need to get out of my head. I'm going to go meet up with a friend for lunch. So we go and we meet and, um, we're eating lunch about 45 minutes away from my house. And about, about two o'clock, I think, um, in the middle of our lunch, I just like come down with these horrible, horrible cramps and contractions. And it was just like, all of a sudden my body just like clicked into gear. And I told her, I was like, I am going to go home. I have enjoyed this. I will see you later. And so, um, I get in my car, I start driving home. I am driving about five minutes away from where my husband works, which is still another 30 minutes to our house. And I got stuck in traffic. I am sitting on the middle of the freeway in Nashville and I am like doubled over in my vehicle. Like I can hardly move. And so I ended up stopping at a Shell gas station and went inside to effectively labor on the toilet um, because I just like felt incapacitated. And so I called my husband. He leaves work and he comes and picks me up. He drives me home. I am on all fours in the backseat of our car. Whenever we got home, I went straight into the bathtub again and just labored there for hours and hours and hours. And toward the later end of the evening, it just like dissolved, just completely diffused. And so I'm thinking again, okay, nothing is happening. I like my body is just holding on to this. And I was told that the Cytotec suppositories basically had to be effective within 24 hours or they weren't going to work. Um, because they were administered at about 12 o'clock, I guess on Wednesday, um, that was that evening. And so then I wake up Thursday, everything is normal. Like I don't really feel a whole lot. And then, um, late on Thursday evening, out of nowhere, I had gone about my day very normal. It just like all of a sudden picked up again. And it was almost 36 hours after I had gotten the suppositories done. It was just like, 
it sent me straight into what I would call the pushing phase of labor. Um, you know, and so I went and I sat on the toilet and all of a sudden, like I could feel a bulge of something. And so I reached my hand under and it fell out into my hand and it was not a clot by any stretch of the imagination. Like this was a, oh, not grapefruit shaped, but grapefruit size of, you know, tissue. And so I scoot over into the toilet and I yell for my husband to come in there. And like, this is all happening so quickly. And I'm realizing this is, this is the erotic sack and I can like see it's kind of translucent. And so I immediately just like take my fingernails and start tearing it open. And that thing was strong. It was so strong, which was surprising to me. Um, I was anticipating like tissue to be broken down that far into it. Um, but everything was completely intact. And the night before we were supposed to fly out for that trip to Arizona, I got to meet my baby. And it was such a surreal experience. I sat in my bathtub and I cried. But I didn't I I wasn't crying honestly out of sadness because like I said I had had those weeks before because I thought it was over with. I had emotionally worked through it. And once I knew that okay, this is not another pregnancy. This is the original one. When I came to terms with that, and then now here I was sitting in this experience, I was filled with so much gratitude because I did not think I was ever going to have the opportunity to meet that child. And yet still God granted me the ability to see this perfectly formed, like inch and a half long little baby, um, which I don't understand how you can look at a child in the womb and say that it is not a baby, but just a clump of cells because mine certainly was not. There were five fingers and five toes and I could see the spine forming through translucent skin and I could see the brain and the ears and the eyes. It was just so absolutely incredible. And um, so... So yeah, we, we had that experience and my midwife had given me um, like a urine sample cup and I filled the cup with water and I snipped his tiny little umbilical cord, believe it or not. Um, and well, I didn't sniff it. I used my fingernails to cut it because it was so tiny and put him in there uh, and to, you know, like no other option available to me. Um put him in the freezer to preserve his body. And so then we went on this trip. Um, it was crazy because while we were on the trip, I could immediately tell that the hormones were dropping out of my body. Like the acne that I had developed was just like immediately going away. Um, I have naturally curly hair and I had effectively lost the curls in my hair due to the hormones in my body. And while we were on the trip, the first time that I washed my hair, like the curls were like just popping back out. And it was so crazy. And then um, it was a couple months before we visited my family in Georgia, but I knew that because we were living at a rental house, I did not want to bury our baby there. I've said him a couple times, and I say that because um, if I showed you the picture that I have of him in the water, 
there is no other, like, I don't know how to say that it's not a penis. Like, it's just, it's just very obvious. And, um, I know also, like, developmentally, that could be something else. But visually, to me, that is what that looked like. And so, um, that also gave me something to kind of, you know, like, tangible to hold on to. We presumed that our child was a boy. And we named him Raphael Whitley. And Raphael means God is a healer. God heals. And Whitley means white meadow. And so I just imagine this child of mine, like, walking through this this field, this white meadow, and knowing that God had healed what we had just been through. And so that is actually where my business name comes from as a birth keeper is Whitley Birth. So that's the story kind of behind that. Um, but a few months later, whenever we came to visit my family, we brought him with us because we wanted to bear him, bury him on my parents' property. Um, they've lived here for the entirety of my life. And, um, and we were in a rental house at the time, so that was not an option. And I, um, the day that we were supposed to leave, we had put it off until then. And I was like, okay, so where are we, where are we going to do this? I had not figured it out by that point. And then it was just like, all of a sudden, this light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, I have a rose bush. I'm, let's go bury him under my rose bush. Years before, someone in our church had gifted me um, this rose bush that I had planted on the property. And I kid you not, I had completely forgotten about this. But we went over to the rose bush, and I, like, started tearing up because there was a little plaque with the rose bush that has the name of the the breed on it and this person had bought this rose bush for me because the name of the flower is Anna's promise so I'm standing there like oh my goodness here we are we are we are about to bury this child that we have loved we have now grieved but we are burying him under the promise, under my promise. And I just like, that filled me with so much hope in that moment. Like it was so bittersweet to know what we were doing, but also like rejoice in the fact that I felt that I was being given like the most obvious sign, like a literal sign that said Anna's promise. And so that is um, the very long way to tell the story of my first, um, my first pregnancy and birth with Raphael, which then very soon after led into the second one later that year. You can just roll into that one. I am here. I am all ears. Yeah. So this one is not quite a um, as <laughs> elongated of a story, um, but I, I think that was maybe February of 2020. Um, whenever we buried him, since he was officially born in December of 2019. If, um, hold on, if, hold on, if it's, if it's not like a long story, you don't have to go into, um, obviously as much detail because don't you have like a crazy conception story? Yes, for sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah. you, you don't have to go like in detail with the second one, just like what you feel is important. And then you can go into the conception story. I'm very curious about that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so just just to like very briefly uh, address the second one, um, it was later that year in 2020. Um, in May of 2020, I 
officially got diagnosed with um, Hashimoto's disease that had developed into hypothyroid. That is something that my mom had dealt with almost her entire life. Um, and so for me, I think that was kind of like the last chapter of my miscarriage um, with my first child because I felt like I had some kind of maybe a reason, I guess, to understand why my body had not carried him. And so, because like I was at the point where I certainly could not support my own system, let alone a child. Um, and so I feel like that probably was the reason why um, he passed. And so I started taking a uh, medication for that um, Synthroid in on Mother's Day of 2020. And um, almost a year to the date from finding out that I was pregnant the first time in G July, on July 19th of 2020, I got a positive pregnancy test. And this one was uh, not a serendipitous because I had already been bleeding for about 20 days consecutively. And the only reason why I even thought to take a pregnancy test was because I just got this really weird wave of nausea one night. And um, I do not get nauseous at all. Um, and I had only experienced nausea in the evening times for like the first 11 weeks when I was pregnant before. So my immediate thought was take a pregnancy test, took a pregnancy test and it was positive. So being like bleeding for 20 days and having a positive pregnancy test, not a good sign. Um, and so I, I called my uncle, my mom's uh, brother, who is actually a family medicine doctor. Um, and I asked him, I was like, what do you think that I need to do? Should I go in right now? Like, should I wait? Um, because I, I think I was so, I was healed from the previous, but like there was still enough of the wound there to like, I felt like I kind of wanted to immediately dissociate from it. And so, um, I didn't want to handle this at home. I just wanted to like have somebody else tell me what was going on. And so we ended up going into the, uh, women's emergency center, um, at the hospital in Nashville. Well, we waited until the next morning. So that was Saturday night. We went to church Sunday morning because I was like, you know, I'm going to get up there. I'm going to sing. I'm going to lead worship and I'm going to believe God for a miracle. And this is going to be totally okay. And it's going to be fine. Um, once again, that like non-emotional, just like fix the problem kind of person coming out, you know, when faced with the issue. And so we went and after church, we went to the hospital. We went to eat and we went to the hospital. And um, so they ended up doing an ultrasound. Whenever whenever they gave me the results, um, it was weird too because it was COVID time. And so like, yeah, the whole, the whole nine. Whenever they gave us the results from the ultrasound, I was pregnant um, and it was an ectopic pregnancy that was in my left fallopian tube. But the bleeding was not because of that. That was um, a hemorrhagic cyst that I had on my right ovary. And so that had began bleeding 20 days before. And then the nausea was from the pregnancy, um, which was then implanted incorrectly. I like think about this every once in a while. You're like, I wonder if I had done anything differently knowing what I know now. Like if I knew that back then. But whenever like they ran all the tests and everything, they also had told me that based on when my, I guess my last menstrual period was, um, 
the HCG numbers were not nearly as high as they needed to be at the time. And so essentially, like, it was already dying or already had, and my body was just trying to get rid of it. Um, and so they offered me, or I say they offered me, that was on Sunday. They offered me, you know, like, let's come back for some blood work for the next couple days. I think I came back a couple days later. Um, it had not doubled. It was just kind of like hovering. And so eventually that Friday, um, they gave me a shot. Um, I had two nurses, one on each side, administer a single shot, um, in my hips at the same time of methotrexate. <laughs> and I don't even think that like, yeah, so much for informed consent. I don't even think I knew that it was a chemotherapy <laughs> at the time. Um, Cause like I said, I was just in a, in such a state of like, this is so wild. I kind of want to dissociate and I'm going to let somebody else take care of it. And in letting somebody else take care of it, um, I was basically not told like what they were using, what they were doing. Yeah, I had a shot placed in my hips and like I could feel the fluid like insert into my, you know, into my hips, into the fat tissue. And for almost probably a year after that, um, any time that I would think of that, any time that I would recall that story to someone, it was like I could feel that sensation in my body from like where, yeah, just like feeling that fluid just like go in. And it was just so wild because um, it was such a unique feeling. I ended up bleeding for another 30 days past that for a total of like 50 from the the hemorrhagic cyst. Beyond that, I guess everything was normal. They never followed up with me to see like, hey, how's it going? We gave you a chemo drug. Um, you also had a, you know, in, implanted, you know, or like it was implanted in your fallopian tube. Like, did that dissolve properly? Is like that okay? So they never followed up with me, which was super weird, but I guess to be expected kind of. Um, so I just ended up going and getting my own independent lab test run, um, just to monitor my HCG and that did go down. And then my cycles came back and that was kind of bad with that situation. Um, but at that point we were definitely feeling like, okay, even though whenever this whole thing started, you know, over a year ago, um, with the first pregnancy, we were not prepared at, you know, being only eight months married to have a child. Uh, we definitely are feeling like we want this now. Um, and so that kind of runs into, I guess, the story of the conception of my son. Um, and really it runs into, um, a process of me working to heal my own cycle um, because I had had horribly painful periods. Um, I had played around for a while with the idea that I maybe had either endometriosis or PCOS um, and uh, kind of eliminated those things, um, but eventually ended up healing my cycle just like a few months before he was born. And as crazy as it might sound to some ladies, um, I was a little disappointed that I got pregnant so soon afterward because I was like so ecstatic to experience more pain-free periods because I had not had that, you know, for so many years before in my life. And I was like, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden I was pregnant. I was like, okay, so no more periods. <laughs> but um, yeah, so 
that was 2020. And then I don't know if you want me to just like go right into it or if you have anything. Over the next couple of years, um, there were times where we actively tried. There were times that, um, and at this point, I had definitely become familiar, a lot more familiar than what I thought I was um, with fertility awareness method the first time around when I accidentally got pregnant. Um, But now we were trying and um, nothing was happening. There were some months where like we weren't trying intentionally, but like I knew based on where I was at in my cycle, that was definitely an opportunity and like something should have been happening. Um, And so we went back and forth on this roller coaster of like, okay, we want to try. Okay, we don't want to try, you know, back and forth. Um, just like kind of an emotional battle of, I don't know that we want this. I I know that I do want this, but like, is it worth the heartache of, if, you know, if we go through this all over again? I have a question. I'm curious, that first time when you thought you understood fertility awareness method, now looking back, what makes you realize now that you know fertility awareness method that you didn't understand it the years prior? I think that the reason why I feel like I didn't understand it prior is because I think I initially approached it. Well, first of all, I had, whenever I got pregnant, I was only a few months off of birth control. And so I think part of that contributed to it um, and my cycle being kind of irregular but also to the fact that I was exclusively going based off of cervical mucus. And I am pretty positive for as long as I can remember um, since starting my period, I have never, to my knowledge, had a dry day. Yeah. And for some people, that's like, oh my God, you've got an infection. But I don't. And I just like have prolific <laughs> cervical mucus. And so... Um, for me, I think initially it was very hard to tell what was fertile mucus and what was not. And um, because there was no delineation of like, okay, there's just nothing. Um, and so I was sort of thinking like, okay, maybe that this is fertile or not fertile and um, got myself confused with that. Uh, trying to, you know, figuring it, figure it out myself versus like taking a class or something like that. Over the course of the next couple of years, as I finished my degree, um, I also had been doing a lot of like personal study toward birth with the intention of going to midwifery school to be a certified professional midwife. And so part of that um, came along with like fertility awareness, um, preconception, things like that, which is something that I now personally do as preconception coaching. Um so that that's kind of like that background as far as why I was confused one way versus the other. No, I think it's an important distinction because a lot of women have said that, right? They're like, oh, I was using fertility awareness method and I got pregnant. And then they realize, oh, I didn't really, really practice it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely like I have heard from a lot of people who just assume that fertility awareness method is the rhythm method that like their grandmothers used and then ended up having five children when they weren't anticipating to have five children. But that is on the, you know, presumption that every woman has the same cycle. And we certainly do not. Um, Like I just mentioned, I do not have a typical cycle at all. Um, And so like a lot of people think it's the rhythm method. And then beyond that, as you mentioned, there, like myself, are a lot of women who 
feel like they have a grasp on it. Um, and really, it's a very loose grip. Uh, you know, there's not a full understanding. And once once you realize what it all like all of it entails and how exactly to go about that, it is highly, highly effective on either side of the coin, whether you are trying to get pregnant or whether you are trying to abstain. Yeah, and it's just such a beautiful method. If no one knows what we're talking about, we really highly suggest um, listening to podcasts about it, books. I personally love the Fifth Vital Sign book. I don't know. Have yeah. you read that one? Um, yes. And oh, her name is Evading Me, um, who wrote that. But, oh, Lisa Hendrickson, I believe. And she runs the Fertility Friday podcast, which I love. Love her content. Yeah, I agree. I think that was a great distinction to put in there because it's a very common topic among women. Yeah. So um, the period of time between summer of 2020 and late summer of 2022, whenever I got pregnant, there's a space of two years where we were kind of like going back and forth between whether we did want to conceive or whether, whether we did it, sometimes knowing that we should have conceived and we did it. Um, and so it was this weird space of like, I knew that over those two years now tacked onto, you know, everything else, like three and a half years, I knew that, and especially having healed my periods and like being familiar with my body and how it worked, like I knew that something should have happened. And so like walking through my day-to-day life, knowing that it was not where I anticipated that it should be was discouraging. It was very discouraging. And, um, in March of 2021, actually, so, you know, kind of well before I actually conceived my son, um, we had a visiting minister come to our church, to our assembly. And, um, in the, uh, in what, in my faith belief, we believe in the gift of prophecy. And I have seen that multiple times um, be true over the course of my lifetime. And um, this minister that came, I had never met him before. He had never met me. We didn't know each other. Um, but during the course of one of the, the services that he was there for, like, the revival, he came over to me in the altar as I was praying and he started to minister to me and tell me that um, God was going to bring me out of my barren season. And I have grown up in church my entire life. And there's not, certainly not in the aspect of infertility. I have not seen um, ministers or evangelists or pastors, whoever, really just kind of like toss around the term barren casually. Like it's not just, oh, we just generally say this. It's kind of, you know, something typical that you could apply to your situation if you wanted it to. Um, It's usually very pointed if it's used. And so for him to tell me, God is going to call you out of your barren season, that felt very specific to my situation. And so I held on to that. Like I held on to that for so long, what felt like so long. And about summer the next year, I think in July, um, my husband had gone out of town and I sat down with some friends and they asked me, um, this is another couple that we were good friends with. And um, they asked me, you know, like, hey, what is, you know, 
not like, like really what's the status of, you know, your fertility. Um, but we were close enough with them that they could ask me that. And I, you know, wouldn't care. Um, but they, you know, just kind of asked a question like, how is, you know, how is that going for you? Like, what does that look like right now? And, um, I was very honest with them and told them, you know, like I am currently at the point where I have zero doubt at all that God could do this. And I know that he has done this for other people who have walked through infertility, you know, seasons of barrenness and they have conceived in, you know, seemingly miraculous ways. Um, I know that he does that and I am very sure of that, but I'm kind of at the point right now where I don't know that that's for me. I know that he does it, but I don't think that he's going to do that for me. And so it was like this verbal admitting that I think I had just like pondered in my head, but I had never actually said out loud, I've given up almost. And like, I can have hope for somebody else, but I can't have hope for me. You know, we had that very raw, honest conversation with each other. And I believe that was probably about July last uh, of 2022. August the 4th, I think it was just a few weeks after that conversation. Um, again, we had another minister come to our church, different guy than the first time. And he had only come to preach for us one time before. I think I had maybe like shook his hand like, oh, it's so great to have you with us or something. But certainly, um, we did not know each other and he did not know me or my husband. Before the service started, we, we start out with pre-service prayer and, um, I was kneeling down in my pew and for some reason I felt impressed to ask God to give me a specific word about my fertility situation because I was just feeling so confused and to the point where like I had not really prayed about it recently. I um, was not feeling like it was worth it, (laughs) honestly. And so I... I asked him in that pre-service prayer, I was like, look, I need you to give me a specific word. Talk to me about this. And I didn't even remember that I had said that until later um, because we went through the service. The evangelist preached a message talking about the, the, um, the phenomenon where you can cut down a tree and there's like, there's a certain name for this and I can't think of it at the, at the moment. Um, you can cut down a tree and like leave a stump behind, but if you water the ground around the the stump, if the roots are still alive, then shoots will come out of the side of the stump and grow effectively a new tree. Basically the point of his message was, you know, if there is something that feels dead in your life and from the surface, it looks dead. That does not mean that what's underneath is not still alive and that if you water it, it will grow. And so he asked everyone in the congregation as um, basically an act of faith to walk around their stump. And so basically to get up out of your pew and start walking around the church building, you know, around your, your stump um, and, water that with your tears, water that with your prayer. So I get up and I'm like, by George, I know what my stump is. (laughs) And so I get up and I start walking around and 
I am like praying, I'm travailing over my stump that is my fertility. And I come around the front of the church and um, he, you know, had the, the minister had been talking with some other people and he comes over to me and like in the microphone over the speaker system and everything, he starts speaking over me, effectively prophesying over me. And just over and over and over again, he starts saying to me, the womb that was dead, God is putting a spirit of life in it. Just over and over. The womb that was dead, God is giving it a spirit of life. And so I'm just like, you know, like just weeping and like fall on the floor, you know, God, you're, you're speaking to me. And so... I leave that service with renewed faith. (laughs) And before we walked out of the church, um, this was on a Wednesday night, so it was like late in the evening. My pastor sent a group text to me and my husband. And he said, this is from such and such from the minister. He wanted me to forward this text to you. He sent us this message, me and my husband. He said, like, stand in faith and water your stump by going out, buying baby clothes, buying a crib, buying, you know, all of the things. He's like, and God is going to honor that for you. Here again, it's just like this extremely pointed thing that like he, like he was not playing around and he just said, go buy some baby stuff. Cause that's obviously what this is about. And, um, you know, for him to not know anything about me and then to be telling me this was just like wild. I thought I was ovulating that day and I did ovulate that day. Um, I know at that point I knew all of the factors to confirm that I had ovulated that day. Unfortunately for me at the time, uh, we were having company over. And so we did not feel comfortable to really um, act upon the time that was presented to us. And so I was already in the mindset of, okay, next month is it. Like, it's it. And so the next day I went out on my lunch break during work. And there was like a little like hobby shop close to where I worked at the time. And um, I went and I bought like some baby bibs and like a little outfit and stuff, you know. So I brought it home to my husband and said on the kitchen counter, I was like, this is my act of faith. And so we were just you know, feeling confident about it. And then it was like a couple days afterward that I remembered, I specifically asked God to give me a word about it. And boy, did he, like he totally showed up for me that night. A few weeks later, I I started taking pregnancy tests just like to kind of just, I can't even remember why I took one. Um, because I knew it wasn't going to be positive based on the timing. But also like I had kept track of when we had had sex. So I knew like when, you know, the possibility of things was, like I said, that night of was not an option for us at the time. Whenever I took the pregnancy test, it was positive. And that was the first positive test that I had had in over two years. And I like pulled up my phone, like to see what all the data was. And when I thought, like, I knew that I had ovulated on that day, I guess it was like October, or not October, um, August 
either fourth or sixth, whatever the day that he came to that service, and we didn't get to do anything, we had actually conceived nine days after I ovulated, which should be virtually and biologically impossible, right? For some reason, I was like, okay, what, like, what is it about nine? And I looked it up. And in the Hebrew numerology, like in scripture, there, every, there's meaning attached to all the numbers. I looked it up and the number nine means new beginnings. And I was just like, what? It, it was the, I don't know. It was just like all of this feeling and just, I, I don't even know how to describe, like I'm trying to comprehend everything that was going through my mind at the time. It was just crazy. Like how, how did you explain it and how do you now? Even though there's no words, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think how I would, um, I guess like with reason, you know, explain it from a scientific standpoint. Um, oh, or spiritual. Like I'm just saying look, like so, how you. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, definitely spiritually. And because the community that I largely keep myself in. Um, I mean, I have people outside of that community, obviously, but the majority of those people are within my faith belief. And, you know, and even to strangers, I will tell you, like, this is my miracle child. <laughs> this is my miracle baby. Um, but I also do know, like, from a biological standpoint, that you can have multiple ovulations over the course of your cycle. And, I don't know that that has ever occurred for me previously, but certainly at the time when I was already casting forward the promise that was given to me that night and saying like, okay, well, it's not going to happen. We'll wait until the very next cycle. Basically for me, God was just like, no, there is still opportunity. You just don't get it. And it was was like, I'm going to show you that, I am still in control of this and give up your desire to be in control of the whole thing. And I'm going to show you like how this is done (laughs) essentially. And so that, that is that, that is the conception of my son, um, which, you know, he is, he is my miracle child. He is my first living baby. Um, and he is wild. (laughs) He is a handful and I love him to death. He's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I asked that question just because I, I like hearing the mind try to explain something that's unexplainable because God moments are unexplainable by the mind. That's the whole point. (laughs) Totally. totally. And I think it's, you know, it's our humanity that just tries to rationalize everything. Um, You know, that's what we're designed to be able to say like, oh, well, it's because of this or this is why. And like I said, in pressure, I am extremely analytical. I want to be able to put everything on paper and know definitively like what's going on. But it was just like this repeated thing in my story of God just like telling me, you should have figured out by now that like you do not hold the pen in this story. Like I am writing this for you. And he obviously is doing a way better job than I ever could have done it to begin with. Because if it was in my, you know, if it was in my hands, then I would have just written the story of 
oh, I got pregnant unexpectedly, and then I had a baby, and then, you know, here we are, this happy family. But stories um, are so much more effective if there is, like, movement in the plot. And just whenever you think, you know, like, something is going to happen, it turns. And that's what, like, keeps you engrossed. That's what keeps you reading. And, you know, I, I am so grateful. I am so incredibly grateful not for the fact that I don't have those two babies that I carried. Um, because surely I would love to be able to ha- be already raising those kids. Um, but I am so incredibly grateful for the experiences that I went through because of that. And I, w- if I had to, I would go through it all over again. Because I can see now years down the road, how that has made me a better person, how that has made me closer in my walk with God, and how I have had opportunity to be more vulnerable with my spouse in some of those moments than I have ever been in our entire marriage and relationship, that if it was not for that, we would have never had those moments. And just like so many things. And now, like, I have helped other women around me walk through similar situations of miscarriage and pregnancy loss and, you know, been able to encourage them in that. And I, I truly see it as a blessing um, and an incredible story that God is writing for me. It is an incredible story. I want to address, this is what's coming up for me. I want to address how we can have doubts on the not conceiving journey right? You had your doubt. You're like, I don't know that God will do that for me. But then it was restored. And then you had that hope again. You had that faith again. And a lot of conception stories are people saying, you have to give up. And I understand what that means. It means surrender your control to God. But also what some people mean is like, some people mean give up your desire. And I don't understand how that, why that would be that way. Because there's a desire in your heart for a reason, and you're a woman. So a woman on this earth, it's in our DNA to want that conception, that pregnancy, birth, a baby. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's nature. And so to say, I have to give up my sole desire of this human life, you know, to have a baby seems weird to me. And for you, it seemed like, you know, you were doubtful, but then your faith was restored and you had hope. And my guess is maybe you're taking those pregnancy tests because there was a seed of hope in you. But what can you say to that? I think, especially in the culture that we live in, where people are so quick to turn to like fertility methods and, you know, outside of themselves, um, you know, clinics and IVF or IUI, things like that to first, I guess, acknowledge to themselves or at least try to frame the narrative that their body is broken um, and then turn elsewhere. I think that like that societal idea kind of pushes that narrative of, well, you just need to give up or you need to admit that like there's something wrong with you or like it's not going to happen for you. And so the only way that that is going to work is if we do some external you know, medical magic on you. And then I I see so many women 
so like attached to the process of how they have conceived, I guess. And they are like, oh, I'm so thankful for IVF because without IVF, I wouldn't have this child. And while, yes, the process of IVF was responsible for that, it is putting that faith outside of your own ability. And and so it's admitting like, oh, I couldn't have done this. You know, I just, I gave up. And the only source for, you know, for saving that situation was some external thing for me. And it kind of like saddens me to see people so attached to the idea of someone else giving that to them. Because while it may be very easy to lose hope in a situation like that, you know, I don't know if you have in your own story have, you know, struggled with any sort of infertility or, you know, pregnancy loss, but it can certainly impact like every area of your life, you know, going through an experience like that. And so once you get, I guess once you get to a certain point in, in waiting, that might be, you know, three months down the road, if you were expecting to get pregnant immediately, you know, and you're three months in, it still have still hasn't happened or you've lost a baby and it's three years down the road and it still hasn't happened. You know, it is easy whenever it doesn't go according to our expectations to lose hope. Our expectations is what manages a lot of times whether or not we choose to have hope. Um, and then realizing that we are not in control. And so all that we should be expecting is what comes, I guess. And for some people, I don't know, that may not be like the right answer. But for me, at least, like, I think I have come to terms that if this is the only child that God sees fit for me to have, then while I would love to have a whole litter of children, <laughs> um, I joke about filling up my my dining table, you know, it seats at least eight, 10 comfortably. Um, and my husband is like a little bit more wary about that. But if that does not happen, then I know that my hope is not misplaced, even if what I want to come to pass does not come to pass. Because for me, my, my hope and my faith in God is still well-placed, regardless of what the circumstances are. And so for, for the woman who is maybe sitting in the experience of infertility or having a long journey to conceiving, um, maybe feeling like I was at that point talking to my friends, you know, well, I think he can do this for somebody else, but I don't believe that it's going to happen for me anymore. Because I found myself at a place where I was just no longer, I was no longer, I wasn't even asking God about it. I wasn't praying about it. It was just like, okay, well, this is just what's going to happen. And then my, my faith was renewed by God speaking to me, but it wasn't until I asked for it because I could have gone to, to that service with that minister and him have never spoken those words over me because it was at the beginning of that service that I chose to ask God to speak to me about it. And so I guess my, my point in that is, is like, don't, just because it's not going according to your plan, just because your expectations are not being met does not mean that there is not still hope there and that it's not worth still asking for. And um, just a few days ago in my, in my Bible reading, um, 
I read through, and I just pulled it up. I read through Psalm 113 in the last verse, verse nine. I like, you know, thought about this knowing I was going to be doing this podcast in a few days. And I was like, oh man, I love that verse. Um, it says, he maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. And so it's even written into scripture that though she may have been barren, she was a barren woman. He makes her to be able to be a joyful mother of children. And so that may, that journey may look different for every person, but on the other side of this, I would never, I would never have the opportunity to speak from this place if I had not gone through what I was going through. So succinct birth story for my son. Um, I ended up going with the same midwife that I, uh, had with my first son, Raphael. And I think that was initially more because I just, again, still was feeling like, okay, this is the right route to go. A little bit trauma bonded to her, I guess I would say, because of what I had been through. Um, and then about halfway through my pregnancy, having, having worked in birth, uh, I came up like for the first time across the idea of sovereign birth, like just birth by yourself. And like, that's an option. And I was like, wait, this makes so much sense. Why, why did I not even consider this before? And so I kind of like dove down that rabbit hole, really found myself in a place where I was like, this is what I want. Like, this just makes the most sense. At that point, we had already paid her several thousand dollars. And so I kind of felt obligated, if not for anything out of respect to my husband who had paid that money to have her present at the birth. So I was like, you know what? It's fine. I'll just have them super fast and then she won't be there. It'll be, it'll be fine. Um, but that did not happen. Um, he was born on May the 10th, the day before I uh, had been on maternity leave for like a week and I was keeping up in the house, really bored. My husband does landscaping during the summer. And so I begged him at 40 and five days pregnant, 40 weeks, five days pregnant to go mow some lawns with him. And so he let me drive the zero turn mower um, and cut five yards in the blazing heat. Um, and that was apparently exactly what my body needed to put me into labor. Um, and I had never felt a single contraction nothing at all. No Braxton Hicks, nothing my entire pregnancy. And so at about 11 15 that night, that Tuesday night, um, I was laying in bed. We had just gotten in bed and I just felt this like tightening sensation. I was like, Oh, I think I just had a contraction. And he's like, okay, cool. And like 10 minutes later, another one came and they kept coming and I was like, okay, this is it. So I was, I was so incredibly excited. Could not go to sleep which um, was a poor decision in hindsight, should have tried to sleep, did not, got up, went downstairs, washed some dishes, was laboring, just listening to some worship music, and um, eventually, like, things picked up really, really fast. They went to two to three minutes. They were almost a minute long each, really fast. Um, and so my husband had called my mom, or I called my mom, like, right after I started having sensations because she lived four and a half hours away in Georgia and she was going to be driving up for the birth. And so she hopped in the car. She came on the way. Um, about five o'clock, I told my husband to um, text the midwife because I was in the shower and I was like holding onto the door handle, 
squatting down on the ground, like couldn't talk through contractions. I was like, this baby is coming soon. And um, spoiler alert, he was not. He was not born until 11.30 that night. So like 18 hours later. And so my mom got there about 6.15. My wife got there very shortly after. And it was like immediately after she showed up, my contractions just like spaced to 10 minutes apart. And, um, I mean, I fully recognized that that was because I knew I didn't want her there and I still invited her presence in anyway. And so that was totally on me for, um, not guarding my birth space. Like I knew that I wanted to, um, and only doing what I thought I had to do out of obligation, I guess, um, from a financial standpoint. And, um, which I'm sure many other women have found themselves there too. So I labored for the rest of the morning, um, ate little bits of things throughout the day. And about two or three o'clock, um, I would just like rotate between the tub and the shower and the toilet. And I just went round and round all day long. Um, and I started getting really tired about two o'clock because I had not slept the whole night before. At that point, I was like feeling so without, like without hope, <laughs> you know, again, talking about hope, I like was needed something to hold on to. And the very person myself, the very woman who was like, absolutely not, I will never get a cervical, cervical check. That's not going to happen. I looked at my husband. I was like, have her check me. I just need to know, like, you know, I need, I need to know where I'm at as if that was going to give me, you know, some sense of security, which I know that that's not true. Um, I set my expectations low and I was like, okay, at this point I should at least be a four. And she checked me and she's like, you're a six. And I was like, okay, that's great. I can do this. So it gave me this like, you know, weird sense of hope. And, and so kept on laboring, ended up having her check me again. Um, and so about nine o'clock that evening, I was just wrecked as in I was falling asleep in between every single contraction because my body was so exhausted. And every time I got on the toilet, I could tell how much that was impacting my labor. Like so much was happening, but it hurt so bad. Like the toilet was awful, but I loved it because I knew it was working. <laughs> and so, um, I, I was, had gone to the tub and I was laying there and I told my husband, I was like, if in the next few minutes, like if, if after the next five or 10 minutes, something does not change, I just wanted to break my water. And I was, I was like just desperate at that point. And looking back, I, um, I had not mentally prepared myself like I should have. And I know that now and know that going into the future, um, that birth is like 95% mental. And, um, and so whenever I told her or she came in there and she's like, are you sure that you want me to do this? And I was like, yes, just give it another contraction and then you can break my water. No, no kidding at all. The very next contraction, my water broke like in the tub. And I was like, thank you, Lord. You knew that I did not want her to do that. I was just like, you know, trying to cop out. And so he was again, just like, okay, I'm obviously in control of this. Why do you keep on trying to, you know, <laughs> why do you keep on trying to do this? And so my water broke at about 9.30. 
And, um, and that was after like 22 hours of labor already. And then I went and I tried to lay down in the bed to try and get some sort of rest. And because my bloody show came, well, it had come just a little bit before, um, my water broke, uh, in another moment where I was like asking my husband to cut the baby out of me because I was just like, this is terrible. And then like, I got my bloody show right after that. And I was like, okay, I can do this. This is cool. <laughs> like in all my little low points and all my valleys, there was something that immediately took me right back up. And so it was, it was really cool to like see that in hindsight in my labor, knowing that like, you know, I was feeling so defeated, but like, okay, here's this little glimmer of hope. At about 11.15, my midwife <laughs> looks at, she, she like talked with my mom and, you know, my mom had all six of her kids at home and said to me she, something like, you know, if you're really feel, it, it looks like you're really having kind of like a hard time. Cause at that point I, I had been pushing, like I would wake up to a contraction and I'd be pushing and then I would immediately fall back asleep just because my body needed the rest. And she's like, it looks like you're, you know, really exhausted. It may help if you, um, you know, if we might consider a transfer because if you are feeling like maternal exhaustion and, um, and I think it's like, I know that the majority of home births, especially with first time, first time moms are due to maternal exhaustion. That's the reason for the transfers. Um, like I knew that. And, um, and so whenever she started saying this to me, it's just like, the sooner that we go, you know, they could do less invasive options, you know, and, but if we waited, then they're more likely just to take you back and do whatever. And it me, like, it was like she, that lit a fire, not she lit, but her words, like, lit a fire in me. And I, I looked at her and I was like, if you think that I'm going to walk down my flight upstairs, go get a vehicle and go ride to the hospital in the state that I'm in right now, you have lost your mind. So, um, my mom, she was like, how about you like get up off the bed and try another position? I was like, okay. It took me like four contractions to get off the bed because they were so close together at that point. Um, and so by the time I got off the bed, my husband was sitting in a folding chair right beside our bed. And I wrapped my hands around the back of his neck facing him and squatted down on the floor. And he was there like 15 minutes later. And I mean, he shot out like a rocket. And so it's just like, it's kind of funny to me knowing that the very person who was like supposed to be my support in that situation had like, I guess, kind of given up that I was fit enough to do it at that point. And then the moment that she told me, like, well, we should consider a transfer, I was just like, absolutely not. That's not happening. There's no way. And because I think that was not an option for me. Never, never an option for me. And so I got up, got in the right position, and we had that baby out 15 minutes later. And his head came out as I I was screaming, it's ripping because... Like the ring of fire was so intense that I felt like my body was being torn in two. And I know there are these women that have these blissful, pain-free burns, but that was not my experience at all. Um, and so I, I thought like I was just ripping open. Turns out I did not tear. 
So I was not ripping. I just thought I was because it the ring of fire was so intense. His head came out and based off of the video that I rewatched, it was seven seconds later that his body came out, but it felt like he just shot out like a rocket all at one time. And we just fell back onto the floor and um, we did not find out what he was um, it, because I had not had any ultrasounds over the course of my pregnancy. And um, so a couple seconds later, um, and I just rewatched the video last night with some things. Um, I just a few seconds later thought, you know, like, oh, what is he? And so I looked I'm like, it's a boy. And my mom in the background, she's like, I told you. Like my mom, she, she thought she knew the whole time. And then we moved two feet over into my bed and had an amazing postpartum experience. Um, I loved every minute of it. And he is just like a glorious, fiery little baby who is nine months old now. Um, every bit as intense as his birth experience was. <laughs> and I have told my friends and I have told my husband that I have already asked God to make the next one like a little more chill because he is a lot to handle. And my husband was like, I'm pretty sure they're just all going to be that way. It's just, uh, it's a combination of me and him together in one little body and he packs a huge punch and it's hilarious. He has so much personality, but it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs>